and two if you don't have your Bible. Yes, it's on the screen. I will grab this pen and just hold it if it's here, so I'm going to put it there. All right, Matthew chapter 4 says, Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness, and news about him spread as far as Syria, which is in the north. And people soon began bringing to him all who were sick, and whatsoever their sickness or disease, or if they had a demon possessed or an epileptic or paralyzed person, he healed them all. Large crowds followed him wherever he went, people from Galilee, the ten towns, Jerusalem from all over Judea and from the east of the Jordan River. One day as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach. So prior to this time, we are reading about Jesus starting his public ministry. And prior, prior to this time, he mostly just ministered to individuals. He administered to families. He administered to people who would come to him on the street. Um, he was gathering disciples. But this is the moment where Jesus is going from like underground prophet to mainstream preacher right here. The crowds are gathering. His fame is growing. People are coming to see him. And so he goes up onto a mountain and he starts to speak to his disciples and the crowds are gathering around. And he is going to preach his first like official sermon to the crowds. Like this is it. This is where, this is where he's going to become super famous in the area. And, and it's interesting because as he's getting ready to preach his first sermon, he's getting ready to preach this message for the first time he's got this large captive audience. Um, you, you would wonder, what would you speak in that situation? You've got one chance. You've got people traveling, it said, from, from north of Syria, from east of the Jordan River. It's like the equivalent of like the state of Missouri is gathering to see him. And so he probably was very careful about what he said in his first sermon, what he was going to deliver to these people, because it's a big opportunity, big stage. And, and it's interesting because in the background of Jesus' first message is a nation of Israel that is in absolute chaos, like politically, physically. It's, it's crazy. Rome has moved into the region like they did to a lot of regions at that time, and they've moved in. Uh, they've taken over the government. They've set up kind of a puppet government there. They've started taxing the people. They've imp implemented these strict rules. And now Jesus is getting ready to start ministering to these people. And they are caught somewhere between, hey, let's go to war with the Romans. And somewhere between the religious elite who are saying, we're just going to wait for the Messiah. So he's got this really divided nation, if that sounds familiar, that he's going to be speaking to with really strong opinions about what a Messiah should be. No pressure for him. I'm sure he was fine, but he's, he's, he's in between that. One side saying, we need the Messiah to be this way. Another side saying, let's fight him. Let's fight them all. We're going to do that right now. And he's getting ready to speak this first message. And what we can look back throughout history and we can see in that timeline and we can recognize clearly that this was not going to go well for Israel. Like this is, this is the end of the nation of Israel. By the time the Bible is done and, and written and the chapters are closed, Israel will cease to be a nation for the next 2,000 years. In fact, Rome was so sick of the Israelites, they kicked every one of them out. Um, they burned down their cities and they renamed the nation. Like, like a bad Taco Bell that they just wanted to get rid of. Like, we're just going to flatten the parking lot. 
putting in a laundromat. We don't want people who used to go to this Taco Bell coming back and looking for it. We don't want anything there at all. And Jesus, no doubt, has a full understanding of what's about to happen in the nation. He's got a full understanding of the people that he's talking to. And yet he goes up and he's getting ready to talk to the people. You would think he would bring some comfort, bring some, like, maybe some revelation about the future. I don't, I don't know what I would do in that situation. But he did not do what I would have done, for sure. Plus, on top of that, Jesus is just fresh off a of 40-day fast. I ate like three hours ago, and I am starving already. <laughs> 40 days, man. So long. <laughs> what was that? That's like Christmas time. It's like before Christmas. It's crazy. And not only, so not only is he fasting in the wilderness, as he's fasting in the wilderness, Satan himself appears to him and starts talking to him and starts tempting him. Not like, hey, I feel like I'm under some spiritual attack right now. Like the devil is manifest in front of him, talking to him about what he's about to do, which is, which is intense. I don't care if your God manifests in the flesh. He deserves credit for all of that right there. That's, that's intense. And what we do know, if we read a little bit further in Matthew, as Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, John the Baptist, who was a very popular preacher, he, he came before Jesus. Jesus would say he was the greatest prophet ever. John the Baptist himself would actually send messengers to Jesus and ask him, hey, are you the one or should we look for somebody else? Which we act like Jesus is just like unable to be touched. But if somebody really important in our lives was like, hey, are you even the right person to do what, <laughs> what you say you're doing or should we look for somebody else? Because it doesn't look like to me that your plan is working out too much. So all of this is going on. All of this is happening in this nation and Jesus comes up here, and he's getting ready to speak, but he does not speak with a fear of the future. He doesn't focus on justifying himself. He doesn't take side in political debates. He doesn't clear anything up. He just sits down there, and he gives his first message, which is the Sermon on the Mount, which is interesting. Do you have that slide? Do you have one before that? That one's cool, too. We'll use that. There it is. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but a few years ago, we went to Israel. And I probably was at the place where he did the Sermon on the Mount. I might have been so far away. They don't know. They tell you. They tell you, but we were definitely in the vicinity where we think it might have been. So I want to talk to you for a few minutes about what happened up there, not when we were up there, uh, what happened when Jesus was ministering up there. First century Jews were looking for a king like David who would overthrow their oppressors. But Jesus' vision for the kingdom of God was radically different from these expectations. Jesus framed the kingdom of heaven primarily in terms of one, an upward relationship with God, an inward change of heart, and an outward relationship with other people. So for a few minutes, it won't be long, I want to talk to you on this title, You, Me, and a Pharisee. I know that's a long intro. You might be wondering, how is this guy's Photoshop skills so good? <laughs> I ain't going to tell you. Charge. He comes up later. Um, imagine that is us, all of us, joined hands, and there's a Pharisee that's disapproving of what we're doing. All right. So the Sermon on the Mount is a great reminder for us today, and we're not all that different 
from the time that Jesus was ministering to these people. Political corruption still seems to be at an all-time high. Religious leaders can't get along. <laughs> we all get along, but like religious leaders, I'm talking about like different denominations of religious leaders can't be in agreement. Christians are increasingly vexed as they're trying to do good to others and follow the word of God, but also stand up against a society that's like on a freight train away from the things of God. And it's a very challenging place to be as a Christian right now. And on top of all of that, we've got high stakes, literal physical wars going on that one wrong turn and anything could go poorly at any moment. It's, it's, it's crazy out there. It's crazy. And locally as a church, on top of that, we're, we're on a journey together that's also, you know, a little bit unknown. Those of you who don't know, we're renting this facility. It'd be cool to have our own. I think it'd be nice. We're doing fundraising. We're, we're uh, looking to build or to buy a church, which normally would be fine, except the real estate market is nuts, and you can't buy anything anymore without paying like 10 times the price. I went to Pizza Ranch the other day. It was like 100 bucks for four people. Try building a church. Yeah, it's a terrible comparison, but you can, you can use your imagination. It's like, we need a pizza ranch to go out of business and give us the building, maybe. that would. I don't know. But they play Christian music in there, so it's like, do you want them to close? Probably not. They're fine. We're looking for a building at a tough time. And at the same time as we're in this journey... We're also about to outgrow our youth and children ministry space. You guys probably hear that on Wednesdays. It's crazy. We're about to outgrow it. Visitors are coming. God is doing amazing things. He's doing amazing things. And it's, it's a weird place to be because I'm so excited about the future, but I'm also so stressed about how it's going to look. Specifically, I think we had 38 people in the youth room the other day, and it was, it was, it was snug. We gave an altar call. There was no altar space. We just, just pray where you're at. We'll see what happens. <laughs> and then even individually as Christ followers, some of us, we're, we're all here with different stages of our journey. Some of us are here and we're, maybe you're a guest and you showed up today and you're just like interested in what God's doing. And some of you have probably been here for years. And it doesn't matter how long you've been serving God, there's still going to be questions that rise up. Like, what's my role in all of this? Or does God know where I'm at? Like, because that's just part of being human and not having all of the answers. And so in all of that, we can kind of relate to this Sermon on the Mount. But in the end, when Jesus delivers the Sermon on the Mount, he seems to be less concerned with the immediate social questions that people have. And yet he seems to be very focused on one thing. And that's turning the hearts of his followers back towards the kingdom of heaven. So he had some, a lot of diverse followers that were with him on the Sermon on the Mount. But they all had kind of their own ideas of how they felt like it should go. They really did. Great, the Messiah's here, let's go fight. Or great, the Messiah's here, let's just focus on preaching. Like they just all had their, their own roles. They had people asking Jesus to be the greatest in the kingdom. You had people asking when he was going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Like everybody's expectations were all over the place. And so Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount in a really specific way. And his way is trying to bring the focus back on the kingdom of heaven. And he starts it. Now, this awesome slide is the one you saw. I got a sneak peek earlier with the Beatitudes. Raise your hand if you ever heard about the Beatitudes in Sunday school. If you didn't, this is going to be your first introduction, and I apologize. But first off, there's no, B, there's no Bs in the Beatitudes. The, the connection is not there. 
the blessing of Jesus are called the Beatitudes because the Latin Vulgate, which we all know and understand, translates the Greek word for blessed as beati. So you can do with that what you will. <laughs> but Jesus uses these, this, this initial thing about focusing on the people who are blessed to quickly remind the people, people who are looking for power, people who are looking for favor, people who are looking to be leaders, people who are looking to start you know, winning wars, like this group, this broad group. And he starts out and he says, hey, look, maybe this self-independence and this self-reliance isn't actually what I'm looking for. Which I know, in America today, that's kind of like taboo to talk about. Right? We all want to be self-reliant. We want to be able to take care of ourselves. God helps those who help themselves, which is not in the Bible, but that's the mindset that we, we're going into. We're going to do our best, and that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but right off the bat, Jesus sets the stage, his first message ever in the public forum. He's leading with the Beatitudes, and if you start in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12, he tells us the people who are blessed. Hey, fun fact, B rhymes with me, Right? So everybody say me. me. So it's you, me, and a Pharisee, but it doesn't rhyme if I go me, you, and a Pharisee. So we're actually starting with me. I know, it's deep, but we're going to do this. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. Jesus is talking. These are the literal words of Jesus right off the bat. The crowd is there. They're all looking to see what he's going to say, and he leads with, blessed are the poor in spirit. All right. They're blessed, the poor in spirit, right off the bat, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. The Beatitudes describe the lifestyle and character of a follower of Jesus. The first teachings of Jesus focus on peace over war, pure in heart over winning, forgiveness over vengeance, and trusting in God during difficult times instead of self-sufficiency. Right off the bat, he comes and he's talking to me. He's talking to you. He's talking like right into us. And he's like, before we do anything with the kingdom of heaven, I need you to recognize something. You're blessed when all of your trust is in me. And you had people wanting to start fights. You had people wanting to rebel against taxes and Rome and temple tax. They were wanting to rebel against everything. And he says right off the bat, if you're, if you're trusting in me, the world might perceive you as this. They might perceive you as poor in spirit or meek. They might not look at you as somebody that they're afraid of or that they're worried about or that they maybe even respect. But those are the people that are going to be blessed in my kingdom. And that's something that even today, it's, it's hard. It's hard for, for any of us to have a situation that might arise, whether it be spiritual or physical uh, or financial, and say, you know what? I am blessed right now because I'm going to trust in God in this situation. I don't know where the finances are going to come from. I don't know how we're physically going to get through this ailment or this situation or this emotional trauma that I'm dealing with, but I am going to put my trust in God, and I'm going to see what he does with it. Right off the bat, the greatest in the kingdom are the ones that allow him to be involved. 
He's saying it right, right from the start. And when we trust in God, we allow him into all areas of our life, whether it be our sadness, our disagreements, our finances, our hurts, our misunderstandings, our attitudes. When we recognize that we need God in all of those things, when we recognize that we allow, that when we allow God to be part of those things, we're blessed, but we're not just blessed for the sake of being blessed. We're actually blessed so that when the world interacts with us, they'll see more of him and less of us, which is really important because the world sees a lot of people. They need to see a lot of God going forward. They really do. And Matthew chapter 5 tells us this. After you're blessed, after you recognize that you need me in everything, not just to be some physical warrior that's going to lead an uprising against Rome, when you recognize that you need me in everything, now I can be involved in everything, and the world's going to see me through you. And he says, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all those in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Salt and light, flavor and flame. Those are things that stand out, small things that stand out big time in the world. And that is what God is calling us to be right away. He's like, right away, if you're going to follow me, You've got to trust in me. Then I can bless you. Then I can work through you. And now the world's going to be drawn to you through my presence. Right off the bat, that's me. i got to work on that. Let's talk about you. Look at your neighbor. That you. Tell him you. I think i got two more of those. Jesus would use the Sermon on the Mount to address how we treat others as well. He cares how we treat each other, which can be inconvenient at times. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, says it like this. Watch out, exclamation point. (laughs) Don't do your good, good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity, exclamation point. He's really passionate about this. I tell you the truth, that they have received all the reward they will ever get. But when you give to somebody in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private, and your Father who sees everything will reward you. You have that next slide? I'm going to give you guys a pro tip on uh, how to be really successful on YouTube. You got you to gotta go out. You got to do something nice for somebody. But you got to make sure the whole thing is filmed. <laughs> <laughs> these people, these people, there was chaos going on all around, and Jesus is like, hold on, these people need to be stopped, because there is no place in the kingdom for people who are bragging about the good that they're doing, and we have a problem, it's been, apparently it's been a problem for a while, because he's addressing it, and he's passionate about it, and now he's calling his believers to do this as well. No doubt at that time, there was a lot of people who were trying to rally people with them, like, hey, let's go, we're going to fight the Romans, or hey, let's go, the Pharisees are crazy, and the Sadducees are sad, you see, and all of this. And, and there's no doubt there was a lot of this, like, grappling for, for position in this kind of this chaotic region. And Jesus says right off the bat, hey, if you're going to be a follower of me, first off, you need to recognize it's not about you. And secondly, if you do something good for somebody and you mention it publicly, uh, You might as well not have done it. Like, that is all the reward you're going to get. But then he says, if you don't, if you don't let what your right hand know what your left hand is doing, or whichever way he said it, he said that you're going to be blessed, and he's going to bless us for that. 
He was really excited about the fact that his, believer, his followers were going to believe in him, they were going to trust in him, and that they weren't focused on bringing credit to themselves. And as humans, just going to give you a heads up, if you haven't figured this out, took me a while, all of us want some sort of credit or validation. We do. I think it's just the way we're wired. Like if we do something good, even if you don't mean to brag about it, you want somebody to be like, good job, right? Strong work. Way to, way to do whatever it is you just did, right? Like we want that validation. But there's also a place where we can go beyond that. And now it's not about the kingdom of God anymore. It's about us all of a sudden. Like look at the things we're doing for the kingdom of God. Look at what we're giving, all of that. And he was like right off the bat, I don't want that to be part of the people who are following me. And so Jesus would also talk about how we should treat those who aren't kind to us. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48, he really cares how we treat others. He said, you have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Another exclamation point. He really cares how we treat each other. And that way you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends rains on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different than anybody else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus really cares about how we treat others. We can have, like, the best prayer life. We can be down here in front worshiping. We can stumble through a message. We can do things for the kingdom of God. But if we don't treat each other well... What good are we to the kingdom? And there's this condition in psychology. It's a whole psychological thing. The study's been done. I don't know if you guys realize this or not. But if somebody is nice to you, you, you have a high opinion of that person. You can watch somebody who says nice things to you, turn around and be mean to somebody else, and you actually really won't care that much. You really won't, as long as it's not somebody like you care about, right? Because you're kind of blinded by the fact that they were nice to you. Like, we all have it. So it's, somebody can come up to you and be like, this person's not very nice. And you pray for them and be like, we don't gossip. But if you were to engage in that conversation, you might be like, well, actually, they're nice to me. So you're kind of on your own because they're nice to me. It's just the way it is as, human, as humans. But Jesus is not that way. He doesn't, he doesn't say like, hey, just because you're great at praying and worshiping and doing things in the kingdom, I, I just have a blind eye towards how you treat each other. Right off the bat, he was like, listen, People who are following me. Later on, he says that people are going to know you by the love that you have one for another. Like, that's it. Like, you're not even going to be known for your singing or your preaching or anything. You're going to be known by how you treat each other. That's what's going to shine the brightest in a world with people who aren't that kind to each other. So he really cares about it. That's me. That's you. And then he goes into the law. You have that slide of the Pharisee up there. You guys might recognize him. This guy was looking down on us earlier. This is what Google tells me a Pharisee looks like. So you have an image of him in your mind. From the very beginning of his ministry, many of Jesus' teachings were being challenged by a group of religious leaders called the Pharisees. The Pharisees get a bad rap for their role in the Bible, and justifiably so. The Pharisees were strict followers of the Old Testament law of Moses. The Pharisees developed traditions and writings known as the Mishnah and the Talmud, which are still being used uh, by the Jewish people today. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would address very critical matters of the law. The Pharisees didn't like what Jesus was doing. First off, he claimed to be the Messiah. They weren't a huge fan of that. They wanted a Messiah that was different, apparently. Also, 
they felt like he went against their teachings. But Jesus would talk about things in the, in the law that were just great topics, right? Tough topics to talk about. He'd talk about things like revenge, anger, vows, divorce, adultery. He didn't shy away from any of that stuff. And I am going to shy away from some of that stuff this afternoon. But he didn't. And he didn't go in there and say, hey, that stuff doesn't matter. He actually took the law. And then he actually raised the stakes for the people who were following him. And that was a huge deal because so many of the Pharisees were just so apt to the law. And they were trying to catch Jesus in his words the entire time. And you read a lot about verbal spars that Jesus had with the Pharisees. But the problem that Jesus really had with the Pharisees, we should all take note and we should all use as a warning today. And that's that the focus, the focus of the Pharisees was only on the law and they became ignorant of the times. And that drove Jesus crazy. They were so focused on the details of the law, the traditional methods of church, holding people accountable that they failed to be open-minded to Jesus. Jesus would actually call them hypocrites and blind guides. He was angry with them for elevating their own human traditions over God's purpose. In the end, Jesus expressed so much disappointment with the Pharisees for this simple reason. They were supposed to point the people to the Messiah, and yet when he was standing in front of them, they didn't even recognize him. And we can look back and we can be like, these guys were knuckleheads. You know, you spend your whole life preparing and preaching to people about the Messiah and about God, and now he's standing in front of you, and you don't even recognize him. But how sad would it be if us, as Christ followers, as Christians, as people who are called to put God first, if he decides he wants to come in and move in the city, but we're so focused on our own agendas and our own details and our own structure and our own way of doing things that we miss what he wants to do. And it's something that we have to be very, very, very careful of and very important to, to recognize. And one of the best ways that we can make sure that we are in the mind of God is in the way that we pray. And the, the, the prayer meeting coming up this Wednesday, just my personal opinion, I think that's probably the most important service on our lineup. I really do. Because when we pray and when we hear from God and we feel the presence of God, we feel the heartbeat of God, that means that, that we're, we're focused on him and what he wants to do for the city and for our lives. And if our knowledge of our service schedule, our meeting agendas and our dress codes are, like we know all of that stuff, but we don't know what God wants to do in Kansas City, that's not good. That's something that the Pharisees would have done. So we've got to hear from God, and we have to have a relationship that starts with prayer. And so Jesus would continue through the Sermon on the Mount, and he would talk about it. One of the most popular passages in the entire Bible is the Lord's Prayer. And he instructs the people how they should pray, and he focuses on the way that they pray. And I know many of you are familiar with that chapter that, that, he, uh, that he addresses how we should pray. But at the, at the bottom line of him talking about prayer is he's looking for a relationship, not just a rule follower. And so many of the Pharisees were just there to follow the rules, which is okay, but they weren't interested in a relationship with God. And the rules of the Old Testament, when you think about the law and you think about Pharisees, the rules of the Old Testament mattered, but the reason they mattered is they kept sin far enough away so that a relationship could be present with God and his people. It's the whole point of the Old Testament, the whole point of the law, the whole point of those standards was like, look, let's keep, let's keep sin as far away from us as possible so that we can have somewhat of a relationship with God. But when the, 
when Jesus was standing in front of the Pharisees, when God manifest in the flesh was standing there, they were so stuck in their old traditions that they couldn't actually interact with the one that was sent there to save him. We can't have a relationship with God by following rules if we don't pray, but we can't say that we love God and ignore the rules that he gave us to live by. You can't have one without the other. They go hand in hand, and that's why he was so frustrated because he was there to fulfill the law. He was there to be that other part, to bring that salvation, and yet they were so focused on their old lifestyle that they couldn't accept him. And so Jesus would start to wrap in some other key points into the Sermon on the Mount. He would talk about money, that, hey, don't store up your treasures. My truck's rusting. Like, it started rusting this, this winter out of nowhere. So irritating, man. It's like, once it starts rusting, it just rusts, like, the whole bottom of it, and you can't, like, all the, it's the whole thing. And he said, it. it's like, if I had read the Sermon on the Mount, I would have been less frustrated, because he says, don't lay up your treasures on earth, right, where rust and moth is talking to me in my truck. He knew it. He says, don't judge others. It says, improve yourself, right? Focus on yourself. If you're not perfect, don't be telling other people what they need to do right off the bat. He talked about wisdom. He was like, look, some of you guys might not have wisdom, but here's a cool thing. You can ask God, and he will give you wisdom. So it's a good thing to know. He talked about the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And then you talk about the narrow gate, right? If you're going to live for God, you've got you to be self-disciplined and, and walk this narrow path. And then he would, he would close talking about something that kind of all-encompassed the concerns that the people that were there had, and that's worry. We don't talk about worry as much nowadays. Nowadays, we mostly call it like stress and anxiety. It's easy to get stressed. Maybe it is for me, and it's easy to be anxious. And you know what? Stress comes from wanting something to go a certain way, and anxiety comes from the inability to control that outcome. Like That's just, that's just the reality of it. So the more things you interact with, the more people who depend on you, the more stress and the more anxiety you're probably going to have in your life. And that's, that's part of being human. But Jesus addressed it right off, the, right off the bat. He was like, look, I know that you all have these concerns. And before we start this ministry, I'm just going to tell you this. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 through 27. He said, that is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all of your worries add a single moment to your life? Can't, actually. Probably takes it away. So with everything going on, Jesus uses the Sermon on the Mount to address these people who are going to be following him, who are going to be moving with him into the next dimensions of his ministry as he goes forward. And he was like, look, I know all of this stuff is going on, but right here, <laughs> right now, I have a goal. And God's goal and focus was this. You've got to get your mind right. You've got to get your relationships right. You've got to get your understanding of who I am right. Because after this, we are going to do some great things together. That was it. With everything going on around him, Jesus was preparing those disciples and those people who were following him for something really, really big, really big, life-changingly big. Because from that very moment, that first encounter, Jesus was looking into the future and he was seeing what we're doing here today. He was seeing the gospel shared with all nations thousands of years later. 
He was seeing people raised from the dead. He was seeing blind eyes open. He was seeing people who were going to be healed. He was seeing the kingdom of God move from 12 people in the middle of Jerusalem and Israel to the entire world. They couldn't see it. They were just trying to fight with the Romans. They, had, they were so stuck in the moment, most of them, they had no idea what was coming. But Jesus saw what was coming, and he saw the future, and he wanted to take all of that stuff and condense it down and bring it home for them. And so following the Sermon on the Mount, the disciples would, would start to get this understanding, and they would, you would see that they start to move from a place of just their own ideals into a kingdom mindset. And as that kingdom mindset started to form, things started to move rapidly in their ministries. All right, that was a lot, but here's the deal. I feel like God has something huge for Refuge Church right now. I feel like we are moving into a season at Refuge Church that is going to be powerful and is going to be unlike anything we have ever experienced. I really do. And I feel like if you're a guest and you're here, that is so awesome because you are here right at the good time. You are. You are here at the perfect time because God brought you here for a reason and he wants you to be part of what he is going to do in Liberty and in Kansas City. And we're so pumped you're here. We really are. But if you've been here for a while... If you've been walking this way for a while, maybe the, maybe the, the zeal has, has faded a little bit. Maybe the passion has diminished. You've heard these messages. You've, you've, you've had a lot of prayer meetings. It's not that you don't love God, but a lot of things have happened maybe between the time you were new and today. A lot of responsibilities, a lot of people depending on you, a lot of life circumstances that have come on you. I just have one thing for you today. It's time to shake all of that off and to get focused, because God has brought you here for this purpose, and you have not been forgotten, and you are going to be part of what God's going to do, and I'm so pumped. And I know it sounds kind of cliche, but I believe this with my whole heart, that there are people in this place that are going to minister to tens of thousands of people. God's brought them here. I believe it. There are people here that are going to be worship leaders and recording artists, millions of people are gonna hear you sing. There's people here that are technology specialists and the thought of being on a stage with a microphone just makes you hate life. But God is gonna use your talents and your ministries to take the gospel to millions of people outside of this city, outside of this place. He's gonna use your talents for that. And I know that from this place, God is going to do great things in the place of, in, in Kansas City and in this area. I really do believe it, and I'm excited. But first, I think we're at the beginning, and I think before all of that, the presence of God is here to ask some questions of us. So don't answer these. Just think about it. Youth ministry, you got to, like, clarify that, or you will get answers. <laughs> so just ponder these things in your hearts. Are you willing to trust God with your future? Not like, hey, I'll trust you with my 2 o'clock on Sunday afternoon. For the next year. Not like legit. Are you willing to trust God with your future? Everything? All of it? Are you willing to make allowances for that person sitting next to you who might frustrate you, <laughs> who might not see things the exact same way that you do? But are you willing to do that? Because we're doing it together. And then the last question, is there a box that you've put God into in your life that limits his ability to do something radical? And as you think about these things, know this, 
We may have our opinions about how God is going to bring revival. I have a really strong preference for it. I do. Uh, he hasn't asked me yet. I tell him all the time in prayer, and it's not happening that way. So looks like it's somebody else's big idea. But he's got big things planned, and it might look different than we think. It might look different than you want. It might look different than I want. It might come across in a different way, but that doesn't matter. Because if we can align ourselves with his plan, all the details will take care of themselves. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, I don't think I gave it to him, which is my bad. Jesus wraps up the Sermon on the Mount, and he wraps it up in this great way with all of the different focuses and then all of his teachings. He summarizes the Sermon on the Mount in this way. He says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. It's a simple challenge, but it's not super easy to do, right? And I feel like that's something that God's bringing into us right now in this season. He's saying, hey, look, I know there's concerns. I know there's questions about how you personally are going to be involved in the kingdom. I know there's questions about the next steps for this church. And I know there's questions about the country as a whole. But hey, you know what? Let me just summarize it for you like this. If you seek first the kingdom of heaven, all of those things will be added unto you. And so when is the last time that we found an altar and truly put aside our own requests you know, our own desires, our own concerns. When's the last time that we put all of that aside and we actually sought the kingdom of heaven? Again, rhetorical question, don't answer that. But as the musicians come, beginning with the Sermon on the Mount and continuing on, Jesus would soon start teaching to crowds that would number anywhere from five to 15,000 people, which is a lot of people, five to 15,000. Miracles would happen all over the place. His fame would spread across the entire region. And there were always people who liked to be around Jesus and loved the idea of Jesus. But when their personal goals and their personal lifestyles didn't line up, the Bible tells us a little bit later on in John chapter 6 that towards the end of Jesus' ministry, he's been preaching, he's been teaching, he's been healing, he's been doing miracles, but now his purpose has become clear. He's going to a cross. It's going to be hard. He's going to die for the sins of the world. He's, he's wrestling. He's saying, if it's possible, let this, this cup pass from me. He's preaching the hard message that says, hey, listen, you've got to give up your life. Whosoever loses his life for the kingdom will gain it. He's saying, you've got to, you've got to trust me with everything, and it's time to make a decision. Are you in, or are you just kind of hanging out to watch me feed people with a bunch of fish? Like, where do you stand in this relationship? And the Bible tells us that everybody kind of departs and leaves. They just kind of all spread and go their way. And, and towards the end of Jesus' ministry, he's left with just a few disciples, just 12. And he asks them, are you, are you going to leave too? Like, is everybody, everybody's just going to leave? And it seems crazy how you can go from so many people interested in Jesus but only 12 willing to make the stand to be everything that he called them to be. Sounds a lot like what's going to happen towards the end of this whole thing as it wraps up and the Bible says we're going to stand before him and many, many are going to say, Lord, Lord, right? Look what I did. Look what I did for the kingdom. <laughs> look what I did. Look what I sacrificed for the kingdom. And he's going to look at him and he's going to say, I, I don't know who you are. I don't know you. So many people know about Jesus in this country. They really do in this world. 
but so few are willing to give their lives and to sacrifice and say, you know what? I'm gonna put my trust in you. You know what? I'm gonna treat people the way you asked me to treat them. You know what? I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna seek after you. I'm gonna put the kingdom of God first. So few people are here that were, uh, that were willing to do that. And yet, it's not a mystery. It's not a mystery. Jesus told us really clear in his word. He said, those who hear my words and do them, those are the children of God. Those are the ones that I say, those are my children. And if you're here today and you're a guest, we've got great news. What you know of Jesus, he's been drawing you to this point. He really has, but he has something more for you this morning, this afternoon, whenever it is. He's got something more for you. And we can come to an altar and we can repent of our sins and we can live a lifestyle from now on that is powerful, that's overcoming. Yeah, there's going to be some trust. There's going to be some sacrifices. There's going to be some things that, that we put aside as we get closer to him. But you know what? He said he would never leave us nor forsake us when we do that. And I'm so thankful that we have that opportunity. And if you're a guest, we're so glad you're here. But as we stand, and you've been living this way for a minute now, the Sermon on the Mount, it's not just a Sunday school lesson. It's not just like a self-help book, like, hey, do these things and you'll be successful, right? I know there's like a lot of sayings that go on like house walls from the Sermon on the Mount. There's nothing wrong with that stuff. But at the end of the day, it was Jesus' first words to his followers. It was his first message to those people that were following him. And he was like, listen, we're going to do great things together. But we've got to get these things straight. If it's not the kingdom of heaven first, let's just start right there. If it's Chad's agenda or your agenda or anybody else's agenda, guys, the revival will not come to this city with that mindset. It will not happen. But God wants to use you to bring about a great revival. Thousands upon thousands of people in this city need to hear the gospel and would receive it if they heard it. But they're not going to be able to hear it if everybody's saying different things and there's not a, there's not a unity that comes from the message and a focus on the kingdom of heaven. And so God is calling us today to put aside these things that seem so important in our lives. And just for a few minutes before we go, say, you know what, God, I want to seek the kingdom of heaven first. I want to seek him first. So would you find a, few, find a place to pray for a few minutes this afternoon before you go? And let's ask God to put the kingdom mindset in our hearts.